Hello. Hello, it's Monique. And Landon. In the Kitchen of Knowledge. With the Nursum Podcast. Yay. So, we're going to talk... It is April. April. 2018. Yeah, I know. Can it's? I can't believe it's already April. That's a little scary. Let's go back in time. In November... A long, long away. <laughs> yes. In November, November 2017. 2017. Um, in 2017, in November, in London, Ontario. Yes, there's another London. I know. I know. London, Ontario. The Middlesex London Health Unit issued an alert about a continuing outbreak of invasive group A strep. There have been about 132 reported cases of invasive group A strep in Ontario. And I guess we need to say that is in Canada. Yes. Because some people like listen may to us not. around the That's world. They true. may not know Ontario, Middlesex, blah, blah, exactly. in Canada. It is in, in Canada. Canada, not the UK. Okay. So in recent months, there have been similar outbreaks of this particularly nasty strain of strep A in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, and Calgary. All in Canada. Yeah. Um, I think they knew that part. I know. But... Sadly, um, just a few days at the end of March, there was actually a death of a young child on Vancouver Island in Canada of invasive group A strep as well. So I know we recently talked about strep throat, but we thought we should differentiate between group A strep and invasive group A strep. There is a difference. So group A strep is a bacterium found in the throat and on the skin. And many people can carry group A strep in the throat or on the skin and have no symptoms of illness. Most, and group A strep is usually called GAS infections. Gas. Gas infections are relatively mild in in illnesses. Like, you know, when we get strep throat or impetigo. Severe, sometimes life-threatening gas disease may occur when bacteria get into other parts of the body where bacteria usually are not found, like blood, muscles, or the lungs. And these infections are termed invasive gas disease. And two of the most severe but least common forms of invasive gas disease are necrotizing fasciitis and streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. Um, The necrotizing fasciitis destroys the muscles, fat, and skin, and the streptococcal toxic shock syndrome, STSS, causes causes blood pressure to drop rapidly and your organs like your kidney, liver, and lungs to fail. So STSS is not the same as the toxic shock syndrome frequently associated with tampon usage. I was going to ask. I know you were. So about uh, 20% of patients with necrotizing fasciitis and more than half with STSS die. So about 10 to 15% of patients with other forms of invasive group A strep disease die. So it's actually it's a very virulent disease if it can go if it can get into those kind of different things interesting yeah so we looked at how well let's be honest you looked yes at how common it was i know and i'm just reading what you wrote i know for this part (laughs) because i'm not good at looking up numbers no i know you hate numbers no patience so there were 1827 reported cases of invasive group a strep in 2014 according to the public health agency of canada this public health reporting is not live for many things That translates to 5.14 cases per 100,000 people. The 2014 incidence rate was about twice as high as a decade earlier when there were 2.68 reported cases per 100,000 people. It's not clear whether incidences of invasive infections are rising or whether they're simply being reported more as reporting did become mandatory in 2000. And, you know, as something becomes more highlighted, smaller or less established institutions or GP's offices 
will start reporting, whereas they may not have before. So provincial health agencies report data on a monthly basis. There are some more recent statistics available. The trend, though, is that there is a concerning increase in invasive group A strep. But it's important that we acknowledge it could just be that we're actually reporting what was always there. Exactly. Yeah. So it's important for us to understand why does invasive group A strep occur? How does it spread and what are the concerning symptoms? Because you have to tell the difference between the normal strep throat. Totally. And then And these are, to be quite honest, these are the six o'clock news stories. Absolutely there. There are a number of them in the last year, just in our province alone, of they were fine, they sent them home. Yes. And then they died or came back super sick. I know, it's really terrible. It's not to say that there's an easy way to tell this, but if we have it on our radar. This might be where a nurse is like, well, you know, does this pass the six o'clock news test? Or should we just keep them for another six hours and watch them and make sure they don't get sicker? So why does it occur? Well, we don't actually understand why group A strep infections become invasive group A strep infections. We do know that invasive infections occur when the bacteria get past the defenses of the person who is infected. This may occur when a person has sores or other breaks in the skin that allow the bacteria to get into the tissue, or when the person's ability to fight off the infection is decreased because of chronic illness or an illness that affects the immune system. Also, some virulent strains of group A strep are more likely to cause severe disease than others. So group A strep is a group. Yeah. It's not one bacteria. Yeah, exactly. It could be different kinds of streptococcal bacteria exactly and i think that that's important that's really important and the other important thing is that even though we're kind of calling or making a little bit of a highlight to this most people who have group a strep are going to not do badly they're mild infections in general there's only a few people who will develop invasive group A strep disease. So most people will have a throat or a skin infection and some may have no symptoms at all. And though, although healthy people can get invasive group A strep disease, people with chronic illnesses like cancer, diabetes, dialysis, those who use medications with steroids, so anybody who has an immune compromised um, state are certainly more at risk of invasive group A strep. Perhaps not surprisingly, invasive group A strep affects the intravenous drug users and the homeless or those living in shelters. And again, you know, we've been highlighting this quite a bit because of the opiate crisis as well. And so a lot of these uh, patients often don't come into the hospital with their infections as well. There is some controversy that this disease has been given more attention now that it's um, entered into the general populace, though, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. There is a reporter by the name of Andre Picard, a reporter for the Globe and Mail, which is a Canadian newspaper, and he commented that perhaps we, meaning the public and or the healthcare community, don't really care about infectious diseases until they start to affect school children, university students, and the suit and tie wearing members of society. As he said, the we reality... Could, we could get on a few soapboxes we could about indeed. many other things that we, society doesn't care about until ex- it affects those populations. Exactly. As he said, the reality is that almost every infectious disease outbreak, like the annual influenza, usually strikes the vulnerable first. And he suggests that we do better health surveillance and we should be providing 
better health care to members of marginalized communities such as the homeless, drug users, and sex workers. Certainly that is a concern, and we don't have to tell all of you the challenges in providing care to this vulnerable community, but it isn't that simple. And I would comment that when a disease jumps from those high-risk patients to the general healthy populace, we should have a heightened awareness regarding perhaps a fear of a more virulent strain of the organism. Well, um, kind of enough editorial editorializing we should get back to what we should be talking about really. let's go back into group a yeah instead, instead of, of group B. yeah and talking about all of this kind of so how are group a streptococci spread yeah well they're spread through direct contact with mucus from the nose or throat of persons who are infected or through contact with infected wounds or sores on the skin Ill people, such as those who have strep throat or skin infections, are most likely to spread the infection. That is like day one of nursing school. I know, exactly. People who carry the bacteria but have no symptoms are much less contagious. Mm -hmm. Treating an infected person with an antibiotic for 24 hours or longer generally eliminates their ability to spread the bacteria. However, it's important to complete the entire course of antibiotics. Yeah. Oh my goodness, none of these. This is why we we're where we're at with these resistant things. <laughs> exactly. And it's not too likely that household items like plates, cups, or toys spread the bacteria. Yeah, so, so. you don't have to worry if your child has um, strep throat or whatever that you need to kind of keep them away from everybody else. Right. So oh, you're going to have so much fun now because he's going to talk about all that nerdy stuff. A little bit about microbiology. Yeah, you love I, that stuff, don't I you? I wasn't the best microbiology oh, really? student, but I think it's because my microbiology professor didn't like me. Oh, okay. Alrighty. Because I didn't, I didn't spread the stuff on the agar plate in the way <laughs> she liked it. Well, it's interesting because, you know, part of my job, um, I actually have to follow up on positive culture results. And so in the last little bit, I've become certainly much more fascinated by microbiology and what antibiotics work and don't work and which ones are serious and not serious. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh, maybe that's another podcast. What, <gasps> you, you phoning people every day telling no. them they have syphilis? <laughs> no, not that, but just microbiology in general mm. and which ones are more concerning than others. But anyway... So let's talk about the similarities and differences between group A and group B, streptococci. Okay. Strep A and strep B, or streptococcus pyrogenes and streptococcus agalactiae. Yeah. Agalactia. 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 Uh, yeah, that's it. Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> Just dated myself. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they're closely related organisms with several characteristics in common. First, they both produce beta hemolysis, which means the organisms contain hemolysins, which will lice red blood cells in agar that contains blood. See, there's Look the agar. Look at that agar thing it's again. Agar. You hate it. I hate it. I know. Part. Secondly, they both appear microscopically when stained with the gram stain method as <gasps> gram positive, positive cocci in chains. See, I tell you. I know. I and that's where our lab typically phones in a panic. Yes, exactly. There are multiple gram-positive cocci in chains. They I phone know. before they've even actually grouped it and everything. <laughs> and until I learned a bit more, I was like, and I'm supposed to be concerned why? Exactly. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> so translated, see? Yeah. This means you would see purple spheres together side by side in a chain formation under the microscope. microscope. Yeah. So gram-positive, meaning they're stained. Yeah. Third... Infections by both organisms are treated successfully with penicillin and related antibiotics. That's the fascinating thing about group A strep. Yeah. The treatment is 
good old penicillin. I like know. It's, it's not resistant. It's not the fancy, dancy. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? I just say fancy, it? dancy. Yeah, again. you did. It's not the big antibiotics. It's penicillin. Like the Which original. Which has been around for so long. The original. Long. I know. It's amazing. Give them moldy bread. They'll be fine. Which means mm-hmm. that some old things are still the best. Wow. That was that was perfectly placed. I thought so too. Normally yeah. I can take you down, but I, I can't there. No, you can't. I'll have to give you credit for that one. <laughs> so there are numerous differences between the two streptococcus species. Their cell wall structure, factors that make them pathogenic, or the virulence factors, how it's acquired in the resulting disease. So let's talk a little bit about the differences because I know everyone cares about microbiology. Microbiology. But there could be nerds out there. There could be. And we could just yeah. say group A strep bad, treat them. And no, it would be I a two-minute podcast, but people want a bit more. I think it's kind of cool. So yes, let's talk about the differences in cell wall composition. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. It's not going to be long. Don't turn us off. <laughs> Many years ago, a microbiologist named Rebecca Lancefield a established... A woman, by the way. A woman. Yay, woman. Just saying. Hashtag not going to say it. Yeah. Established the Lancefield grouping system used to differentiate the cell wall polysaccharides that differentiate strep A from strep B and the other beta hemolytic streptococci. This basically means that testing for these different cell wall antigens can help in differentiating between the two streptococci. So they just have two different cell walls. Exactly. Virulence factors. The virulence factors for each organism differ greatly with strep A having many more factors to help the organism cause disease. Strep A has protein F, which helps the organism attach to the epithelial cells. It has protein M in part of the outer surface of the cell wall that serves as an antiphagocytic mechanism. Wow. Meaning the white blood cells can't. Nom, nom, yeah, nom. I think that's pretty amazing. The organism also produces several enzymes and hemolysins that contribute to tissue invasion and destruction. In addition, so this is all group A. In addition, strep A also produces various toxins that can cause anything from a rash to organ failure. Mm -hmm. So scarlet fever, toxic shock, respectively, which you're going to talk about. Exactly, yeah. Strep B produces very few virulence factors, one of them being lipotechoic acid, which contributes to the organism's organism's adherence to human cells as the initial step of infection. Yeah. So it's actually, it's it's not as strong, is it? The strep B is a little no, bit No, no, strep B is, yeah. is a lot. And you, it's pretty rare that it's you B, hear. It's B instead of an A. Oh my God, call them back. <laughs> they have a strep B infection. No. Like nobody's ever received that phone call. No, I don't think so. But, but the, the strep A. the lab phones and they're like, hi, you had this person yesterday. I'm sure you remember them. Yeah, yeah. no. <laughs> and you need to call them back. All right. So this disease. So next subsection. Yeah. Because they can't see. No, exactly. The spectrum of disease is a big difference between the two streptococci. Strep A is usually transmitted person to person through respiratory droplets, coughs and sneezes, or by direct contact. Group A strep infections cause many different kinds of conditions, and these bacteria are responsible for causing strep throat, ear infections, bacterial pneumonia, meningitis, scarlet fever, cellulitis, and they also can cause toxic shock syndrome and necrotizing fasciitis, which you're going to talk about. Yes. Yeah. Group B streptococci cause far fewer diseases than group A. This organism usually lives in the vagina and can cause meningitis and sepsis in newborns if they're infected during the birthing process. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't cause disease in the mother. No. 
Unfortunately, the use of antibiotics for women who are culture positive at childbirth is successful prophylaxis for the newborn. So it's just one more of those things on that yeah. checklist, including APGARs yes, that exactly. we have to do exactly. when that thing comes out. Right. The baby. That's yeah, called whatever. a baby that's coming up. Alien thing. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of the normal kind of diseases and some of the um, really sick diseases that are caused by group A strep. So the two that I'm going to talk about is strep throat and scarlet fever. And quite frankly, we already spoke about strep throat in a previous podcast. So we'll refer you back to that podcast. Remember that most sore throats are caused by a virus. However, it is important to do a throat culture and treat with antibiotics if the culture is positive because we don't want it to become an invasive group A strep. And so. use the stentor criteria. Yes. Very good. Yeah. Stentor can't remember now yeah it's in the podcast yes exactly the other thing that i will talk about is scarlet fever or scarlatina that sounds so much is that better why they call it scarlatina because it's yeah scarlatina, scarlatina. yeah so Never scarlet fever is a bacterial infection that can easily spread to other people it is more common in children though vulnerable adults are also susceptible it usually takes two to five days for someone exposed to group A strep to become sick, and you usually get sick with a fever and sore throat. One or two days later, a red rash appears, and then the rash can appear before illness or up to seven days later. Hmm. The rash may first appear on the neck, underarm, and groin, then all over the body, and it's usually small flat blotches that slowly become fine bumps, kind of like sandpaper. And the cheeks might look flushed or rosy, and there may be a pale area around the mouth. The underarm, elbow, and groin skin creases may become brighter red than the rest of the rash. And the rash from scarlet fever fades in about seven days. As the rash fades, the skin may peel around the fingertips, toes, and groin. This peeling can last up to several weeks, and it's caused by a poison or a toxin made um, by the bacteria. And it most often occurs with strep throat, but can also occur with other group A strep skin infections. Is that something we still see? We don't see it very often anymore. To me, you that's see like it. a disease from the 1800s. I know, but scarlet maybe. fever. But I think it's because we, they didn't maybe have I'm penicillin just, back then Maybe either. I'm just thinking of Scarlet O'Hara and that's why no, I No, they had scarlet fever in a lot of those old movies and people died of scarlet yeah. fever. Kids used to die of scarlet That's before the you know invention of penicillin, right? right. Um, the other one that I'm going to talk about is post-streptococcal glomerular nephritis, um, which is a kidney disease that can develop after infections caused by group A strep. It is not a group A strep infection of the kidneys, but instead it's a result of the body's immune system fighting off the group A strep or skin infection. And it usually happens about 10 days after strep throat or scarlet fever. And about three weeks after that, you can get this, um, Oh, after a skin infection, you can get uh, post-streptococcal so, glomerulonephritis. So 10 days after strep throat or scarlet fever. And then three, three weeks, weeks after, after skin, skin infection. infection. Again, post-streptococcal glomerular nephritis is more common in children than in adults, and uh, mostly in young school-age children. And um, if you're going to get post-streptococcal glomerular nephritis after infection, Patigo, that's more common in preschool age children. And the symptoms of it can include like kind of a dark reddish brown urine, um, swelling, especially in the face around the eyes and then the hands and feet. You may have a decreased urine output and feeling kind of tired, so fatigue due to a mild anemia. If you dip their urine, they'll have protein in the urine and they will also have high blood pressure. 
And the treatment of this is uh, really on managing symptoms. So decreasing the swelling by limiting salt and water, or even having to give them some diuretics, and then managing high blood pressure uh, through antihypertensives. And additionally, people with post-strep glomerulonephritis may still have group A strep in their throat, and so they need to be given antibiotics. So even though that's not caused by group A strep, that is a condition that might happen from post- the exactly. inflammatory or the immune response. It, yeah, exactly. Interesting, isn't it? It is interesting. I know. All right, more diseases. Yeah, but this is caused by the invasive part, right? Invasive group A strep. So you talked about just group A strep, boring old group A strep, wimpy group A strep. Oh, excuse me. I get the big old strong group A strep. Exactly. Wow. All right. So the first one, necrotizing fasciitis. That even sounds bad, doesn't it? It does. It does. It doesn't sound good. It's a rapidly progressive inflammatory infection of the fascia with secondary necrosis of the subcutaneous tissues. The speed of spread is directly proportional to the thickness of the subcutaneous layer. Necrotizing fasciitis moves along the fascial plane, and more than one type of bacteria can cause this rare disease, group A strep being one of them, Mm -hmm. Klebsiella, Clostridium, E. coli, Staph aureus, uh, Eremonis hydrophilia, Public health experts consider group A strep to be the most common cause of Mm -hmm. uh, necrotizing fasciitis. Accurate diagnosis, prompt antibiotic treatment, and surgery are the most important to stopping the infection. And and in my career, again, we work at the kind of the big house hospital in the area where these people get sent. And so I've seen my share of necrotizing fasciitis patients, and it amazes me how you can outline their... Yeah. infection and go back 20 minutes later and it's moving like yeah. it's just so rapid it's quite dramatic it's dramatically yeah. rapidly moving yeah so yeah it is something that needs to be and again what kills group a strep good old regular penicillin, penicillin. like it blows me away that people can lose limbs because of this and old is best and that's just right. saying mm-hmm. you're the best yep <laughs> So most cases of invasive strep A do not present as necrotizing fasciitis. Knowing that, though, yeah. if you have someone with a skin infection, I know. that is, and they describe it, and I always say, you know, I, I don't need points. I don't need validation. If someone comes to me at triage and says, I've got this, like, swelling and redness, and it's, like, moving up my arm and it's moving pretty quick. I don't lose points if I just yeah. walk them back to the place and go, hey, doc, can you look at this right now? Because yeah. honestly, 20, 40 minutes could make a difference in someone with this rapidly expanding Absolutely. thing. And so, well, it, it, it may be the difference between uh, losing trying, a limb losing and a limb. not. Right, exactly, yeah. So according to Manitoba Public Health, which is a province in Canada, there are 90 to 200 cases of necrotizing fasciitis per year in Canada, of which... 20 to 30 percent are fatal so it's so a it's, small amount but they get they die it's a high fatality yeah it's a huge fatality. and that doesn't include limb amputations and exactly that kind of thing. so we're just they will about seriously death. go yeah. eight inches above where the redness is and just do an amputation like that's absolutely that's how, um, extreme some of the procedures are to stop this from spreading According to uh, what we have in BC, HealthLink BC, which is uh, the nurse line that Mm -hmm. a lot of you have, uh, necrotizing fasciitis may include pain worse than expected, considering the size of injury, Mm -hmm. pain that gets better over 24 to 36 hours, then suddenly gets worse, red, swollen, and hot to the touch, fever, chills, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Boy, those first two symptoms sound very familiar. I know. (laughs) Like a compartment syndrome. It does, doesn't it? Because, oh, hold on. 
it is a compartment syndrome. It is. A... <laughs> Swelling in the compartment. Yeah, exactly. So that's necrotizing fasciitis. Yeah. Again, I go to work every day thinking this isn't a contest. No. If I'm worried about something and something sounds fishy, let's just get them to the person and, oh, they skipped the line. and uh, Don't be that kind of nurse. Who cares? Be- you were worried. Just exactly. Take them, take them and have someone tell you not to be worried. And I think that some of you may have a process in your emergency departments where you are bringing people back for cellulitis where they get antibiotics daily. And so it's really important that, you know, when those folks are sent home and told to come back in 24 hours, that we actually tell them that if this gets worse, like Mm -hmm. way worse before 24 hours, come back sooner. Like don't waste, if all of a sudden it gets a lot more painful, a lot worse, don't hesitate. Well, my appointment is in 24 hours. No, no. Encourage your patients that say, come back in 24 hours. However, if this gets exceedingly worse, come back sooner. Because so, we won't know yet exactly. what the culture shows. Absolutely. And definitely if the lab phones and says, exactly, I see streptococcal in chains, Ex- group A, anything like that. Absolutely. That's and if where they, you should be like, let's pull this person's chart and absolutely. phone them right now. <laughs> and if they are a vulnerable population, for totally. heaven's sakes, tell them to come back sooner. Soapbox. Mm. I know. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll get off it. No, now. no. We both got on it. I know. So one of us bad. needs to push the other off. <laughs> okay. All right. Second condition, streptococcal toxic shock syndrome, not the tampon disease. No. Streptococcal toxic shock syndrome, or stasis, STSS, is a toxin-mediated acute life-threatening illness, usually precipitated by infection with either Staph aureus or Group A strep. Simply put, it's a streptococcal infection that's associated with the sudden onset of shock and organ failure. So it's characterized by high fever, rash, hypotensive, multi-organ failure, so three or more organ systems, uh, desquamation typically of the palms and soles, one to two weeks after the onset of acute illness. The clinical syndrome can also include severe myalgia, vomiting, diarrhea, headache, non-focal neurologic abnormalities. Most of the management is symptom control, source control, resuscitation, antibiotics. So it's kind of a they're going to so- look like a sepsis, shock, right? a sepsis person. Yeah, it absolutely. Yeah, it is. So yeah, that's pretty interesting. So the usual kind of group A strep things you're going to see your skin infections, your strep throat, or your scarlet fever. With your invasive strep, you're going to see maybe the necrotizing fasciitis or the or this blood toxic shock. Toxic yeah, shock. absolutely. But it is important. I know that it sounds so scary. And in emergency departments, I think it is important for us to always be on the lookout or be fearful that maybe this is worse than it is and not get blasé about things. But it is also important. Like, let's not get everybody running out and thinking, oh, my gosh, every single person who comes in has invasive group A strep. So it is important for you to remember that group A strep infections are usually mild and that the body's immune system is naturally able to fight off most strep infections. In some cases, antibiotics may be needed based on your culture and sensitivity. Again, it's important that we do that. But as healthcare professionals, we need to be vigilant to clinical symptoms that get worse quickly or do not respond to treatment which may be suggestive of an invasive strep. So as we were on our soapbox earlier, if it looks not your typical, or you need to tell people if it gets worse quicker, 
come back in. We should just keep a a broad or a um, index as higher totally. index of suspicion. It shouldn't be the patient's responsibility to know as much as we do exactly. and think. Well, they gave me antibiotics and they went home. We've all had patients come back Absolutely. with a cough that you've given them antibiotics for the pneumonia and they come back six hours later and feel say, I don't feel better. And exactly. we roll our eyes. But this is the same. If if I've given you antibiotics mm-hmm. and it yeah. keeps getting worse, yeah. I don't know what any good practitioner should want them to come back yeah. for a, yep, that's still fine, yeah. versus have them not come back and 24 hours later you're having an awkward conversation about, you know, you know that arm you like? Yeah. it's It's got to be cut off. Exactly. And I think that's just, I think that often we get a little bit blasé about mm-hmm. things that we see very often, but those things could actually be the start of something a lot worse. And yeah. so just being vigilant, I think, is important for us to not get blasé or not kind of stand down we should always be a little bit more proactive in the way that we care for our patients and then also to have a very good conversation with our patients that it's okay to come back and I think sometimes patients feel like they're not good patients um, in quotation marks if they come back sooner than than to be expected and Listen, if they worry and they need to come back, so be it. Job security. Yeah, exactly. That's how I feel. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, everybody. And we will see you next month. In May. Yeah. May flowers. Yes, I hope so. And while we're getting some of our cherry blossoms uh, here in April in the west coast of Canada, which is lovely to see. All right. See you next month. Bye. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember... Before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education. www.prneducation.ca